Last week we finished up our study of Psalms, and this week we begin a new eight-week series that will lead us up to Advent. And the title of the, uh, of the series is Journeys of Faith. And so I'm excited about this series. I'm excited about walking through uh, the Old Testament and, and looking at several Old Testament characters so that we'll see the lives of these Old Testament men and women of faith. And I pray that as we look at these, uh, these narratives, these stories of these characters, that we'll be challenged personally to a deeper walk of faith. And I pray that we'll be spurred on to lives of godliness so that, so that we'll be about proclaiming Christ's name and His gospel among those that we walk with every day and ultimately out into the nations. And so this morning, as we look at the first character for a journey of faith, we look at the life of Noah. But before we look into the text this morning, uh, would, you, uh, would you pray with me? Let us pray together. Father, as we come before you, uh, Lord, I pray that you would take your word, and Lord, that you would plant it deep in us. I pray, God, that you would take your word and that you would speak. Lord, that you might take the feeble attempts of my mouth to articulate the truth of your word and that you would, you would make it resonate with us. Oh, oh Lord, I pray that you would by your Holy Spirit, help us to see the truth of your word as it as it instructs and applies to our lives and as it communicates to us about who you are, about your goodness, about your holiness, about your sovereignty. And I pray, God, that you would open our eyes to see the truth of your word and how it lines up against our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would give us strength, give us clarity to understand it. Give us illumination by your Holy Spirit. And Father, give us a desire, increase our desire to live according to your word. And now, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. And as Mr. Al said, we'll walk from beginning in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 and we'll quickly go through Genesis chapter 9, really through verse 17. Mr. Al also mentioned the theme of the service today is God's patience. And you might be wondering how in the world when we talk about God's judgment through the flood do we get to God's patience as a theme for the service I think we'll see through the text that in the midst of God's judgment, there were many times in which God delayed His hand of judgment and was patient with God's people. And I think it points us to a far bigger picture that we would even see today, God's patience with us as His creation, with, this, with the world, with humanity, that God is patient with us. So the narrative of Noah and the ark is a familiar story to Christians. Many of us grew up hearing the story of how God delivered Noah and two of every animal through the torrential flood. But children's Bible story books often diminish the dark side of the story. 
These stories are, are, are filled with rainbows and smiles as Noah and his family and all the animals exit the ark. But this morning, as we walk through the biblical narrative of Noah's life, we'll see that Noah and the ark is anything, anything but a children's story. It's the story, really, of God's judgment on man's wickedness. But it's also a story of God's patience and His grace extended to one man, Noah. And this man, Noah, finds favor in the eyes of God. And by this man, Noah, finding favor in the eyes of God, God spares the human race. So if you find your place in Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 5, I want to invite you to follow along as I read. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of his heart, or every intention of the thoughts of his heart, was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This morning, I I want us to see that even as we look at this text, God's judgment is imminent. And in light of God's imminent judgment, I want to challenge us that we would cast our lives upon the security of Christ so that our lives might be marked by righteousness, by blamelessness, and by walking with God. So the first scene that we come to This morning in the text is the pronouncement of God. He pronounces divine judgment and the wickedness of man. We see this in verses 5 through 8. And the question as we come to the text is, why did God desire to erase humanity off the face of the earth and bring judgment on the world? The answer is seen in verse 5. For it says there in verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You see, the circumstances of Noah's day, they were awful. Verses 11 and 12 continue to tell us the same thing. In verses 11 and 12, it's really a parallel to verse 5, telling us the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its way on the earth. You know that saying, that saying that everyone on the earth was wicked. Every thought was only evil continually. There was this continuous wickedness, this perpetual wickedness and evil that sprung forth from the hearts of men. And it was rampant, and it was all over just to kind of give us an idea of what we're talking about here, the timeline between Adam and Eve's sin in the garden when they were kicked out of the garden and Noah's day when the flood began was roughly fifteen to 1,600 years. And the earth's population had grown exponentially during this time. So Adam lived to be, Scripture says, 930 years old. Scripture records for us that Adam had three sons, Cain, Abel and Seth. And you're probably familiar with the story that Cain rose up and he slew Abel. 
Now, we know that Seth lived to be 912 years old, and he fathered a man named Enosh, and he, Enosh had other sons and daughters. And so the men recorded for us in Genesis 5, in the early account here of Genesis, they lived into the 900s. So nine centuries, right? 900 years old. Kenan, 910 years old. Jared, he lived to be 962 years old. Methuselah lived to be 969 years old. Lamech lived to be 777 years old. Lamech was the father of Noah. Noah was the 10th generation from Adam. Now, just to give you an idea of how the population could explode exponentially, I just want to use myself as an example. So, by the time I was 32, I fathered four children. And that means that by the time that I reached 64, my four children could also father four children. And so by the time I'm 64, I could have 16 grandchildren. And if my grandchildren did the same thing, then by the time I'm 96, I could have 64 great-grandchildren making the population of the Taylor clan 86 people. Now, provided that they all had spouses, because by necessity they'd have to have spouses, there would be 172 people then in the Taylor clan. But let's take it one generation further. If I live to be 128 years old, and my 64 great-grandchildren each had four children, making me a great-grandfather 256 times, and they all had spouses, this would bring the Taylor clan to 682 people. You see the exponential growth. Now, what would be the case if I had... 20 children, and this happened, right? Or 100. Or 300. 300 children. You know, in a time when people were living to be 900 plus years old and living under the command to be fruitful and multiply, the population of the earth would have been in the hundreds of thousands. And I'm sharing all this because I want you to get the picture that it was more than just a few families living in small settlements, a, a few miles sporadically placed throughout the small known world. Because as humanity flourished, so did wickedness. Wickedness flourished in the heart of man to the point that God had enough. And he says, I'm going to bring swift judgment on man's wicked, evil heart. And in verse 6, it says that the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and it grieved his heart. This doesn't say that God made a mistake, or that he was taken by surprise or unaware of man's sinfulness. It tells us that God looked upon his creation, and he was grieved over it. He was deeply saddened by man's rebellion. I think what we see is a stark contrast between Genesis 1 and 2, where God looks upon what he's created and says it was good, and Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, where Moses emphasizes the words that every thought, every intention was only evil continually. I know the movie Noah received uh, mixed reviews, but as I, as I watched the movie, it helped me to conceptualize really the vast wickedness of the times. One scene was particularly gruesome gruesome and memorable for me, though. 
just before the flood comes, Noah had snuck away and he was watching the crowd from a distance, kind of at the edge of the wood line. And as he's watching the crowd of people in their savageness from the edge of the woods, he sees that women are being abused and that, that an animal is ripped apart by the crowd. And in that moment, as he's watching, a man turns and he looks at Noah as if he's possessed by a demon. And Noah catches eyesight with me, turns, and he runs back to the ark. What we need to understand is that in the midst of this time that Noah's living, there was great depravity. There was great wickedness. Man's moral failure had grown to a point that God looks upon it with such disgust, and he says, I'm going to wipe it all out. And so God's response to man sin is seen in verse 7. In verse 7, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. He says it again in verse 13 there in chapter 6, I will destroy them with the earth. Verse 17, everything that's on the earth shall die. Chapter 7, verse 4. Look at what he says. Every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. Verse 23, chapter 7. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. This is horrible judgment. God looks upon his creation. And he weeps. He is grieved over the wickedness that is in the heart of man. And so God in his divine judgment is going to wipe man off the face of the planet. But verse 8. Verse 8 provides a ray of grace amidst the looming dark cloud of God's judgment. Do you see it there? But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And so the scene moves in the midst of judgment to, secondly, divine grace in Noah's walk of faith. We see this in verse 9. Noah was a man of faith. In fact, verse 9 tells us these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And it says Noah walked with God. In other words, Noah knew God. Like Enoch who had walked with God and was no more. Noah was a righteous man because he believed God, and it was, it was his faith in God that made Noah righteous. The writer of Hebrews gives us insight into, uh, into the faith walk of, of Noah. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, we read, By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You see, Noah's walk of faith points us to see the hope of grace in the face of coming judgment. And so the question is, what are we to learn from the life of Noah? I think there are a few things that we can learn, several things we can learn from the life of Noah, but I want to highlight three for us quickly this morning. First, it's this, that Noah obeyed God's word and he walked by faith. So God speaks to Noah. Look in verse 13 of chapter 6. 
What's it say? And God said to Noah, right? I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them from the earth. And then he proceeds to tell Noah what to do. Noah, make an ark for yourself of gopher wood. Make the rooms in the ark to cover inside and out with, covered inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. He gives them the dimensions of how to make it, right? 300 cubits long, 70 cubits, uh, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. Make a roof. Here's what you do with the roof. Make a window all the way around for ventilation. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth and destroy all the flesh that's in it with breath under heaven. Everything that's on the earth shall die. And so we see, then he says, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And so Noah, not having ever seen rain, not having ever seen an ark, follows what God calls him to do. In fact, in verse 22, it tells us, so God spoke to him in verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. So he built the ark. Noah obeyed God. He obeyed what God had commanded him to do. He built the ark, and it carried them safely through the waters of God's judgment. And so God speaks to Noah a second time. He speaks to him in chapter 7, verse 1. The Lord said to Noah, Noah, go into the ark. And then verse 5 points out to us, Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him, right? Then the flood comes. Chapter 7 and 8 detail the flood account. So Noah and his family with the animals are on the, on the ark for one year And 11 days floating through the waters, the torrential flood. And then in chapter 8, verse 15, God speaks to Noah again. And God says to Noah, Noah, go out of the ark. And in verse 18, Noah went out of the ark. He and his sons and his, his his son's wives and his wife. And they brought all the animals out of the ark. I think one of the points we need to see is that Noah's righteousness didn't come from sinless perfection. His blamelessness wasn't about sinlessness. His righteousness came from believing upon God's word, trusting in God and following what God had commanded of him. But secondly, we also see about Noah that Noah preached God's judgment through building the ark. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter tells us that Noah was a herald of righteousness. That is, he was a preacher of righteousness. For 120 years, Noah worked to build the ark. Six days a week, I would imagine, he would wake up and he'd work on building the ark. So the size of the ark, right, 300 cubits long, that's 450 feet long. 50 cubits wide, that's 75 feet wide. 30 cubits high, uh, that's 45 feet high. This was a massive box right it was a massive ship in fact ships this size weren't even being built until the 1900s when steel would be used in the construction of ships i mean this was a a huge ship it took him 120 years and in the midst of all that time building the ark his act of building was a constant statement of the coming judgment of god He was a preacher of righteousness in that he was obediently following God's word. And I submit to you this morning that the testimony of Noah's life mattered before God and it mattered before the onlooking crowds as they watched him day by day construct this wooden box. I believe the people of Noah's day knew the seriousness of their sin because 
Because they knew Cain. Cain was marked by God so that any man who took revenge on his life by taking his life would be repaid sevenfold. Cain was living among them and he was a living illustration of the deadliness of sin. Adam lived 930 years. I wonder how many times Adam and Eve told their story of the fall from perfection in the garden to sin outside of the garden. I wonder how many times they told grandkids or their children or great-grandchildren or told those in the community. Enoch walked with God and then he was no more. I wonder how many times Methuselah told the story about his father who for 300 years walked with God as a faithful man and then went to be in his presence. I think the people of Noah's day knew their wickedness. Can you imagine the pressure and the taunting that Noah received from the people that were all around him for those years when he was building the ark? Look, there's crazy Noah. Noah, when are you going to finish that box that you're building? Noah, when's the rain coming? This rain that you keep talking about, when's it coming? What has God told you to do about all of this? But Noah would keep on going, proclaiming God's word through faithful obedience. So we see that Noah preached God's judgment through the building of the ark, through, through his faithful obedience. And we see that Noah received grace as an heir of righteousness. God was gracious to Noah. And as Noah, Noah believed God, he believed by faith. And here's what happened. God counted his faith to him as righteousness. And so we read in chapter 7, verse 23, that although God blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the earth, we read at the end of that verse, only Noah was left and those who were with him on the ark. So here's the thing. God exercised divine grace toward humanity through Noah, a man of righteousness. And though the men of Noah's day had 120 years to hear of God's coming judgment and to repent and turn from their wicked ways, they refused the patient hand of the Lord. And so Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What I want us to see is that in a similar way that that the ark was the instrument that saved Noah and his family from God's wrath, so the cross of Christ is the instrument by which we are saved. Because Christ was resurrected from the grave, having triumphed over sin and death, we have hope. We have hope from the final judgment of God's wrath upon mankind. You see, God's judgment on humanity's wickedness and sin in Noah's day points us to a greater reality of Christ's eschatological judgment. There's coming a day where Christ will judge the world in its wickedness and in its sin. He'll execute swift judgment on all who reject him. And as Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 through 39 read, Jesus says this, For as were in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. 
In other words, just like it happened then, so is going to be the coming of the Son of Man with that swiftness, with that urgency, with that quickness, with that unawareness. For as in those days before the blood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. If we look over in the next chapter, chapter chapter 25, we see beginning in verse 31 where Jesus kind of puts a capstone on, on what he's saying about the coming judgment. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, verse 31, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he'll separate people from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You see, this is what's coming. And just as in Noah's day, the call is for God's righteous people to walk in obedience to Christ. You see, the truth is that God is doing a work of reconciling the world to himself through Christ's sacrificial death so that all who believe upon him will inherit Christ's kingdom, God's kingdom at the return of Christ. So I would ask us, church, what is what is the call of Christ in our lives? Is it not missional? When God speaks, should his people not obey him? Jesus tells his disciples in John 14, 15, if you love me, right, you'll obey my commandments. He exhorts them to abide in me and I'll abide in you. And we look at the great commission text of Matthew 28, 19 and 20. And he says, therefore, as you go, make disciples of all nations, right? Here's the command, make disciples. This is, this is the life work, generally speaking, of every twice-born individual. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And behold, what? I'm with you, even to the end of the age. And so we see this commission, this command that God has given all of his children, And that is, we are to be about the process of disciple-making. And this involves evangelizing the lost. This involves proclaiming the gospel to an unsaved, unconverted, dark world. To a wicked place. To an evilness. That from man's youth has a reservation in the heart of every individual. Isn't it by preaching God's word that people will hear and be saved from this judgment that we're talking about? And the answer is yes. Yes, it is. So so here's the challenge. Let us be like Noah, the preacher of righteousness, and seeing that God's judgment is imminent, let us cast our lives upon the security of Christ so that our lives are marked by righteousness, by blamelessness, and by walking with God. You see, we see God's divine judgment in Noah 
and it points us forward to see the coming divine judgment that will be issued forth through Christ. We see God's divine grace exercised toward Noah, and it points us forward to see that God, by by His grace, has sent Christ. He has stepped down into the world, and He has come that we might have salvation in Him. He is patiently waiting while the course of human history unfolds. The third scene of our text this morning is we see the divine covenant and the promise of a better way. We see this beginning in verse 20 of chapter 8. So the flood happens. Man is eradicated from the face of the earth. Every living thing outside of the ark is gone. There is no point of dried land at all. And then after the flood, the waters subside, the wind blows and there's a story here even of God's recreating the earth as he, as he moves the waters and separates the waters back off of land and it dries out. And then God, God gives this covenant to Noah. And I want us to see why this covenant is a promise of a better way and points us forward to a better way. And in chapter 9, verse 8, we see that God establishes the covenant with Noah. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. This morning as we close, I want to give us three what I think are very instructive points regarding this covenant that God makes with Noah and with the earth. First, he gives us a promise of security. We see this in verse 20 through 22. What's the first thing Noah does when he gets off the ark? He builds an altar. He sacrifices the clean animals that he has brought with him to God. He does this to make atonement for his own sin, but he does this also to to praise God for bringing he and his family through. He, He brings a burnt offering before the Lord. And God responds to this offering, right? In verse 21. Look at what God says there in verse 21 of chapter 8. I will never... uh, The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. And here the security that God gives in this covenant. Verse 22, while the earth remains, as long as the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer, winter, day and night shall not cease. I won't flood the earth again with a flood of judgment. Watch and notice something about verse 21. The language of verse 21 is similar to the language of chapter 6, verse 5. He says in verse 21, he realize, or he, see, he says something, for, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. The point we see is the deep-seated evil in the heart of humanity didn't change after God's judgment through the flood, did it? In other words, God's judgment eradicates man with finality. But it doesn't deal with the sin problem that man has in his heart before God. 
So there's another way God must deal with man's sin. This points us to look forward to a way that God would deal with the sin that is in the heart of every man, woman, and child. And so secondly, we we not only see that there's a promise of security, there's a promise of fruitfulness and sustenance. In chapter 9, verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, do what? Be fruitful, multiply. Verse 7, he tells them again, and you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. There's a command here in verse 1 and verse 7 of the, the propagation of life to be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 2, chapter 2 through chapter 5 intentionally connects Adam and Noah so that we see, as we see that Adam was the first progenitor of the human race, so now as God has graciously brought Noah through the flood that he becomes the second progenitor of the human race. And then he gives man dominion. Verses 2 and 3. Animals are given as food into the hand of mankind. This is the first time that man begins to eat meat in verses 2 and 3. But in verse 4, there's a prohibition against eating the blood of animals. In verse 4, he says, But you shall not eat the flesh with its life in it, that is, its blood. I've got bad news for all of you that like medium rare steaks. I'm just joking. The reason that they weren't to eat animals with the blood still in the meat is the blood of the animals to be drained out and poured on the altar as a sacrifice to God. This is something that the Levitical law under Moses makes clear for us, that it's, it's used for the atonement of sin. And the difference is it distinguishes men from the ravenous activity of animals as they kill and attack their prey and eat their prey. The point is man is to show proper reverence for all of life, because all of life is sacred. So this isn't a, a prohibition against eating medium-rare steaks. This is, this is an exhortation to value life. And so in verses 5 and 6, we also see the protection of life is given to man as a responsibility for executing justice. This wasn't the case before the flood. Look in verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God institutes capital punishment. When Cain slew Abel, God placed a mark on Cain and said, Let no man touch Cain or I'll revenge him sevenfold. But in man's wickedness, he he grew to a point where even Lamech brags in chapter 5 of Genesis about killing a man. It says, if Cain's revenge was sevenfold, then let mine be seventyfold. And so God gives divine permission of capital punishment for the protection of society. It's a heinous crime to, of divine scoffing to take the life of a person who's made in the image of God. And for this offense, God himself, the sovereign over creation, he sanctions the administration of justice to be placed in the hands of men to carry out a responsive and a responsible discipline for inflicting death on another person who's made in the image of God. It's a serious thing. So God gives the promise of security. He gives the promise of fruitfulness and sustenance, and he gives the responsibility here of justice. 
But then thirdly, he gives the promise of faithfulness. As we've already highlighted a little bit in verses 8 through 17. He gives a covenant with Noah. He makes a covenant with man and with the earth. Oh. What's the sign that marks the covenant? Rainbow. That's right. The sign is the rain. We see that in verse 13. I, I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, let me ask you another question. Don't look at the text. What's the purpose of the sign? A reminder? A reminder for what? I'm sorry, speak up. Yeah, not okay, so so that the world won't be flooded again, right? That's that's the point that that we we walk away from and and we think that this is this is the point of the rainbow. It's to remind us that God would never flood the earth again in judgment. And in one sense, yes, that's true, but in a very broad sense, it's much bigger than that. Look at what verse 16 says. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Verse 15. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The point of it is God sees the bow in the cloud and he remembers Not that God forgets, but it's a sign by which he remembers and says, I will never again flood the earth. God sees and he remembers the sign of the covenant. And here's what he does. He holds off his judgment. He's patient with us, right? 2 Peter 3, 9, God is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So that as the scene of human history unfolds, we might experience God's mercy and His grace toward us through our redemption by the blood of Christ. You see, the cross of Christ then points us to the covenant, the new covenant of God's faithfulness toward us. And this, brothers and sisters, is the promise of a better way. Man's heart is still sinfully corrupt. But God in his rich mercy has dealt with our sin through a divine covenant. God will never again flood the earth in judgment. Instead, he's provided a better way through his merciful patience with mankind. And that is by the person and work of Christ. God the Son stepped down out of heaven, walked the earth. He lived a sinless life, perfect in his humanity. And as the second Adam, he purchased our sin debt with his life by dying on the cross. And he satisfied God's wrath against mankind's sin by paying the penalty of death that we, like the men of Noah's day, deserve. He died so that through his death, we might become righteous before God. You see, this is the promise of a better way. Friends, hear me this morning. God's judgment is imminent. So the challenge is let us cast our lives upon the security of Christ so that our lives are marked by righteousness, by blamelessness, and by walking with God. Let me ask you this morning. Is your life marked by righteousness, by blamelessness, by walking with God as Noah Not perfection, but as walking by faith, obediently following 
the Lord Jesus Christ. In all of life, every area of our lives, the gospel informs and shapes. And Scripture is clear. The command of Scripture is clear for the believer that we are to be about making disciples of all nations. We are to be about the commission of Christ in the world. Brothers and sisters, is your life marked by righteousness, blamelessness, and walking with God? This morning, if this is the first time that you've heard the story of Noah or heard of the covenant that God has made between God and man and then pointing us to see who Christ is and how Christ has fulfilled this covenant, how Christ has made a better way. If this is your first time to hear this and you've got questions, I'd I'd love to be able to speak to you and answer those questions. Love to be able to share with you the way of Christ and knowing him and why Christ is a better way and how how God's patience toward us is, is continually being exercised that we might believe upon Christ and follow him. So I'm going to close in prayer this morning. And I want to invite you to respond as the Lord leads you. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the hope of your word. We thank you how we can see in Scripture that in the midst of judgment, you demonstrate grace. And that you look upon us with patience. And that you have made a way for us to have your righteousness so that we won't experience your judgment in the coming days. We thank you that that we have the hope of security through Christ and that you have made a way for us to experience and to be in your presence eternally. And so, God, we pray that you would strengthen us this morning, that we might be men and women, a people of righteousness, of blamelessness, and of walking by faith. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.